Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. When you get really close to these people and you find yourself in the room with them on a hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, heartbeat-to-heartbeat basis, you really get the true sense and the true passion of their commitment, the intelligence, and it becomes not like something that you'd see dramatized so often or, or written about in fiction. It becomes real. They're real people just like us, but they're focused and almost with an obsession to hit this target. This week, Hollywood legend Michael Mann and author Elaine Shannon on their inside story of the DEA's takedown of a global criminal mastermind. Arms running, drug smuggling, crypto, murder for hire. Stranger than fiction, so you're going to want to stick around. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, helping busy professionals who have more than a 401k plan to worry about. Evo Advisors, Offering clients financial advice, fiduciaries for families, more at evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments. With more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining us from NPR, New York City, opposite Brian Park, a veritable true crime lover's fest, man, uh, Michael Mann, four-time Oscar-nominated Hollywood filmmaking guru behind Heat, Insider, Last of the Mohicans, and who can forget Miami Vice from my hometown. How are you, sir? Very good. It's uh, great to be here. Joining him, Elaine Shannon, author of Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire. The veteran investigative journalist spent years on this. Michael Mann and crew are now adapting it for a movie. How are you? Just great. Thanks so much for having us here. Thank you. And they're joined in studio by retired DEA special agents Tom Sindrick and Lou Millione. Thank you again, all of you, for letting me herd the cats this way. Great to be here. Uh, just to jump ball, actually, Michael Mann, um, I look back at Miami Vice, which I fell in love with. You know, going back to the early 80s, I, I know you, you were buttonholed about it endlessly in elevators, wherever you go. I mean, with all the body of work you've done in the past 35 years, but comparing the villains of Miami Vice, and I'm thinking Calderon in season one, and kind of the characters that you brought through that ensemble cast, to this guy, um, you know, Paul Calder LaRue, who was just an absolute genius sociopathic mastermind using cryptocurrencies and encryption software, everything. It's kind of like comparing, a, you know, an old, old West gun to like an M- M16. How do you compare him? It's night and day. He he constitutes a uh, kind of a magnum leap uh, or leap uh, order of magnitude in uh, uh, in in a criminal genius, uh, a transnational crime lord of an altogether new kind. That's that's Paul Leroux. He doesn't and did not self-identify as part of a criminal subculture. Um, he came up in completely different straight ways as a uh, as a programmer writing encryption for major banks governments and um, and moved into uh, an area that I don't even know that he defined as any uh, it's, not, it's not as if he walked through a threshold and said oh I'm now going to become a criminal and I wasn't before it just was a logical progression but he's a uh, genius a sociopath and fascinating and introduced a revolutionary modality in transnational organized crime. 
Yeah, I would think it would be enough for a person to be motivated by greed or delusions of grandeur or empire building. But there's something at the base of this guy, an antipathy, a sociopathy, a misanthropy almost. I don't know if he was you know, ignored, if he was bullied. I mean, he got his revenge on the world by almost becoming, I think, the closest thing to a 21st century Dr. Evil. I mean, a lot of people would leave well enough alone, but this guy had to kind of, you know, gild the lily of evil and kill people himself and come up with elaborate ruses and and, and constantly be plotting to do things that were way past the threshold of what you thought were were necessary for him to sustain his empire. That's right. He's kind of Dr. No for real. Uh, It's not fantasy. It's reality. He's uh, – and he he, uh, – in fact, he even wanted – wanted an island or had an island because he thought all villains are supposed to have islands. But in, in becoming the kind of uh, Elon Musk of transnational organized crime and overturning all that had existed before, uh, he, he became a, a unique unique figure and there's probably going to be more like him. Elaine, when were you first tipped off to this story? I was uh, embedded or buried, let's say, deep inside uh, transnational organized crime as it funds terrorism. I'd been in Afghanistan. I was looking at Hezbollah. I was looking at the Taliban. And then I heard about the arrest of a brilliant man that was like no other, naturally. I wanted to know more, and so I dug in. This is the result. I've talked to hundreds of sources. I've never seen anything like this guy. Now, Michael Mann wrote in his foreword uh, to the book, Uh, I'm quoting here, he and those who have followed traffic in advanced weapons systems, tonnage of drugs and exotic fissile materials, and engage in money laundering. They corrupt struggling small countries into failed nation states to provide transport hubs and service regional conflicts. This new world's innovator and its architect is Paul Calder LaRue, close quote. And when I read that, I thought that this guy, um, you know, it's kind of the, the, the information technology person, and he's almost like an arbitrageur. He's like, where can I most easily corrupt people? Um, a country like Liberia, which is always toggling in and out of failed state status. I mean, people are completely viable. He has complete control over the system. You deal with another country with rampant corruption in the Philippines when you realize, I am a guy behind my desk. I'm kind of everywhere, but I'm nowhere. And in this almost in a kind of a global gig economy sense, everybody is fungible and everybody is for hire, Elaine. Almost. Uh, There were a few people who couldn't buy. He didn't know which ones he couldn't buy, and that was his downfall. Tom and Lou, uh, you know, in my research of the DEA and dealing with, uh, you know, very cold-eyed drug kingpins of yesteryear in Miami and in Colombia and in Mexico, there was this idea, look, it's nothing personal. Everyone is um, acquirable, including and especially DEA people, Tres Letras, you know, FBI, DEA, um, you see all this stuff that's coming out in the Chapo Guzman trial and conviction of of people that he bought. Now, I don't understand in in, in reading about you and your special elite unit, um, you know, I'm looking at this. How do you inoculate it from corruption? You're not the best paid people in the world, and yet you're around unbelievable uh, access to money, to, to people who can be acquired, to women, to luxury resorts. How do you come in and have almost this Franciscan purity to you? There's really no purity. And, and you know, the only, if I could, you know, gently push back, the idea that, uh, 
you know, agents can be corrupted by this. It certainly could happen in an extremely rare case, but there was no temptation. There was no temptation at all. The, the, the men and women of DEA that I've served with and I've worked with, it didn't matter if there was 10 million in a room, a thousand pounds of gold and, and uh, $30 million worth of cocaine. It didn't matter because we were doing what we were supposed to do. And it was never really an issue. It wasn't ever a struggle to try to stay on the straight and narrow. We don't walk that line. We don't get near to that line. Our vice is going after targets like LaRue and putting the cases together to get uh, people like that. Wait, how do you take that for granted, though? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be cynical or skeptical. That is, I, you know, you're paid a government salary. Uh, it's a very tough job. You're away from your families. Your life is constantly on the line. How at the outset, out of training, do you make sure, it, it, I'm, let's not say you, but everybody else in your network, that there isn't a weak link or somebody who is much more susceptible to the siren call of corruption? There's, first of all, if there was a weak link, we'd see it, we'd sniff it out. Um, I'm not so naive to think that everybody, we're all human, right? People are fallible, so that can happen. But um, it's not, it's, it's really not hard. I mean, it's not hard. It's not even an issue. Um, I mean, I've been around, I, I served for 20 years. Tommy can speak. He served for just under 30 years. And uh, we've been in lots of situations where no one's watching, um, we're in ungoverned spaces doing these cases, following the rule of law with counterparts. Like you mentioned Liberia, I would, I would quibble and say it's not necessarily a failed state. I know it was, it's, it's kind of in this nascent um, piece that it's going on, you know, going through right now. But it, if it wasn't for people like uh, the counterparts in Liberia who couldn't be bought, and they had every reason to, you know, be bought. They, they had nothing. They're in a, in, a, in a country where they're very poor, you know, across the board. They weren't able to be bought. So... Uh, we've been impressed across the board. There are people that want to do the right thing, and they're going to navigate the difficult path to get the right thing done. Michael, Tommy. man, sometimes you get you get people, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the crimes delineated. I mean, the bill of particulars in this thing. The crimes of Paul Calder LaRue, you, you can't make some of this stuff up. Um, agreeing to sell a militant group portable surface-to-air missiles for attacks on U.S. and U.N. aircraft involved in opium crop eradication. Uh, sales carry a penalty of up to life in prison because many terrorist groups are seeking these weapons in order to down civilian airliners, commit mass murder, and paralyze international travel and commerce. Another crime, creating a new kind of cell phone detonator for terrorist bombs to be used in East Asia. Uh, here's another one. It's more mundane. Conspiring to violate U.S. laws against selling prescription drugs without legitimate prescriptions. His e-commerce pharmaceutical empire was the largest illegal Internet pill business ever detected by the DEA. It is known to have made illegal drug sales totaling $300 million. The real number may be much greater. Uh, M Michael Mann, it's like, uh, you know, no offense to Elaine. It's like this guy practically wrote the screenplay for you with all of these caricature type crimes. Um, you know, you go out of your way to, to touch every possible third rail. You're talking national security, narcotics. It really gets down to motivation. And by the way, it does with the DEA agents you're talking about as well. Because in order, because oddly enough, this is kind of a similarity. Paul LaRue's motivation is not just to make money. Uh, and it, it, it followed motivation. He was motivated to do uh, processes, invent ways to do things that no one else had ever done. That's what really got his blood running. Whether or not he bought a yacht, whether or not there were some big numbers attached to it or kind of points on the scoreboard, but the real motivation that drove him forward was to do something that no one had ever quite done before. And that took him, that made him into a vanguard and, and, and helped propel him through uh, into new modes of uh, kind of new business plans, new modes in which organized crime 
functions and operates with the, all the DEA agents that, that I've met and particularly with Lou and Tom and everybody around here, their motivation isn't to um, you know, buy a second home in Colorado. Their motivation when you cut through it is to make, um, is to make very, very difficult cases, to be the tip of the spear um, moving against targets. Kind of, it's kind of the motivation of a mountain climber to climb a mountain. And then you increase your skill sets and you could do a more difficult climb. And that's the ambition. And that's why the money is kind of immaterial. And, uh, and the higher you go into the echelons of really proactive, very, very unusual, very aggressive uh, law enforcement, I've often found with the best of the detectives, you often find that. Uh, Elaine, you would think that he would be decidedly nonviolent. I mean, he's a person who wants efficiency, uh, fungibility. You don't want friction. He's constantly trying to improve the methods and distribution and supply. But And yet he ordered and financed the murders of at least seven people. And I don't know if in reading your book, if he necessarily did it with gusto, but he was, uh, uh, you know, kind of decidedly not bothered by it. That's right. In fact, uh, the agents tell me that he started enjoying it and wanted to do more of it. And it was a really good thing that they caught him when they did because it was going to escalate. He's, uh, it was a stupid mistake to threaten many of his employees. And in fact, as I tell in the book, uh, the mercenaries and the uh, some of the other employees had a pact where he would get mad, he would get frustrated, he would threaten to kill somebody, and he would tell one of the mercenaries to do it, and they supposedly had a deal where uh, if you need to kill me, we'll just fake the murder, we'll get some fake blood, we'll take some fake photos, and then I'll disappear. You know, I want to read uh, from a portion in your book that kind of, you know, was eye-popping to me. I'm from Iran. I cover the situation and, and you know, arbitrage of, of, you know, sanctions skirting quite a bit. Um, you wrote that LaRue and his emissaries were told that if he came up with a guidance system for Iran's short and medium-range rockets and missiles, he would be paid $100 million in gold. He was all in, calculating that he could make himself indispensable to the Iranians. It wasn't just the money, though. A hundred million was an attractive figure. He embraced, quote, projects, as he called new ventures, with a passion he never expressed for his children, wives, lovers, or kin. For him, the Iranian opportunity was like walking into a room full of fresh chessboards. He saw it as an opportunity to scale up to a larger arena, from weapons to weapon systems and eventually weapons of mass destruction. Um... I struggle. I struggle with all of that because I cover business and there are people who are motivated by more mundane things and they, they want to do it and they want to get out and not get caught. Uh, but there's something deeply traumatic and unresolved about his upbringing that he he really needed to be a Dr. Evil figure. And I only thought that that was the province of, of Hollywood caricature or sitcoms. But no, this was the real deal. It is. And this is all backed up with emails that he sent contemporaneously. This wasn't invented after the fact by him to get more attention. He had. There are in, engineers in the world who worked on this secret navigation project, the missile navigation project. If you read the Israeli press, which I do, uh, one of the hot topics is the Iranian accuracy project, and it is aimed at improving the missiles that they, Iran gives to Hezbollah and Hamas, uh, he would. Paul was recruited for that project, not saying that he necessarily succeeded, but 
if you read the press recently, the Iranian missiles have become more accurate, and that is very chilling. He wanted to do it for some kind of perverse satisfaction. I cannot tell you why, but I know he did. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Michael Mann, Hollywood filmmaking legend behind Heat, insider Last of the Mohicans, and, of course, Miami Vice. He uh, was deeply involved with Elaine Shannon's book, Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire, as were retired DEA special agents Tom Sindrick and Lou Million. Uh, Tom, sir, yes, can you comment on... Uh, Inside Washington and across, you know, Interpol and these other things, the the uh, the need for both cooperation and discretion to take on a shadowy enterprise that traverses not just you know international narcotics trafficking, but you know, dancing with the Iranians, dancing with the North Koreans on meth. I mean, I I don't even know who the point person for these things is in in, in D.C. Do you call Condi Rice? Do you call the Secretary of State? I mean, who controls all of it? Uh, I would say nobody controls all of it, to be quite honest with you. Um, They all think they control it. They all think they know it. But unless your boot's on the ground, you really don't have a clue. You get briefings from people who got briefings from people who got briefings from people. Um, They really don't have a full grasp of it. They think they do. They don't. A guy like LaRue is completely unique. We attacked the shadowy figure through the use of confidential sources, very simplistic, very direct. The only people who truly grasped the significance of LaRue were the people within our unit, uh, our boss, Lou Milioni and Derek Maltz at the time, and ultimately the people in charge at the DEA. When you went and tried to explain this to people, they they had almost a disbelief at times. Um, why, I don't know. That there, there was a false notion on occasion that why would a guy involved in weapons also be involved in drugs? Why would a guy in terrorism be involved in drugs? They didn't believe these things crossed. And I'm talking about the defense um, department, the intelligence community. Um, that's where the breakdown is. They fail to understand that these guys cross all boundaries. They don't care what you think. They don't care what Washington thinks. They care what they're doing. And nobody really truly grasps it. But here's the thing. As you add on necessarily layers of international cooperation, you necessarily have other potential tripwires for this enterprise to be informed. I mean, if you have to bring in the UK and South America and East Asia and the Chinese and, and, and the Filipinos, how do you maintain the quality assurance, the kind of the sanctity of the mission? How we did it was we kept it very tight-knit in the 960 group. We operated within our boundaries in areas where we felt very comfortable, such as Liberia, such as Thailand, where we knew, where we, knew we had trusted, trusted counterparts, where we knew we could keep a tight noose and around everything. Um, if you told me we had to go to the UK, we'd be in trouble. I mean, people talk. It gets out within the community. We kept a close noose on this. We spent. We talked to the people who needed to be talked to in the countries where we were operating. We talked to the bosses that needed to be talked to within the areas of operation we were working in. I don't understand how you take a place like Liberia for granted. That it's really it's 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 really more airtight than a UK. 
I, I don't know. You know, look, we work with the UK, but this made the most sense in Liberia. The history with Liberia goes back, though. The history with Liberia is when there was a DEA agent who was a Liberian national that came to this country, worked his way through night school, and then became a DEA agent, Sam Gay. He was worked in every every West African country throughout the agency, worked uh, amazing undercover operations. He and I became close friends. And when he was based in Liberia, in Ghana, we went over to Liberia. We met with the son of the president, who was a childhood friend of Sam's. That history, that relationship, our trust for that, and the fact that they would never betray that friendship allowed us to work with a, with the president, a Nobel Prize winning president, incredibly... Um, uh, a wonderful woman who said, whatever you need, you can work in our country. We trusted that. We didn't take it for granted. We trusted it. And, and it bore out time and time again. We've used that country in the sense of used it as a location to stage and do things and also work with our counterparts there. They had professionalized the agencies. We worked with them and we were successful every time we worked down there. Some of the other crimes I'd like to delineate, and, and these are kind of in the category of, did you know, I only recently realized that you know, the, the Breaking Bad operation that is North Korea. Um, Paul Calder LaRue conspired to ins- import tons of North Korean methamphetamine into the United States in conjunction with members of the Chinese triads, outlaw motorcycle gangs, and other traffickers. North Korean meth sales are believed to help finance the rogue regime's large weapon system, including the development of nuclear-tipped missiles capable of reaching the U.S. mainland as well as U.S. allies South Korea and Japan. Uh, I'll give you another one. Uh, developing a new recipe for a high explosive for terrorist bombs to be made from common coffee sweetener. Iranian officials asked for the recipe to share with Iran's proxy terror cells operating in the U.S., Europe, Israel, and elsewhere. They paid LaRue $5 million in gold bars. Um, does anyone want to jump in? I don't even know what to, to say about that. Well, I can jump in definitely. Let's start with the triads. Uh, the interesting thing behind that was in how we uncovered the North Korea involvement in it is when we got the math that had a unique organic compound when we did the testing at the special testing laboratory of the DEA, uh, we could not determine like what that unique organic compound was. It just kind of read unique organic compound. When we started conferring with our counterparts uh, who operate in South Korea, they said they were seeing similar uh, testing results. As a result of that, we were able to put together the lab in South Korea with the special testing lab at the DEA, and it bore out that it was the same organic compound that was being used in both believed to be North Korean commodities. So we were able to link buys directly to North Korea and the triad's involvement in it. There's an area uh, between North Korea and China where it's like a free market. So it's an easy flow for the triads to obtain uh, methamphetamine from there. So it's really a quite simple, uh, I think, as as Michael said, like complete farming process. That's that's the easy part. You're just moving it at that point. The triads can buy off people. It's very simple. Michael Mann, uh, if you could chime in on this Dennis Gogol, he was the German ex-sniper and one of... um, you know, the kingpins paid killers. He was sent to Monrovia, Liberia, to kill two men in what the DEA said was a was a sting. Um, I, you know, the one thing I, could, I couldn't square in this is here you have an operations person in LaRue perfecting everything, bringing it down to a science, being very spreadsheet-oriented, 
um, being very cautious about detection. And yet necessarily you have to bring in a person who is superhuman and fallible, uh, given to using steroids, given to you know junkets with prostitutes in Thailand, uh, given to these bouts of rage. You, you have to kind of swim in the water with these very uh, strange animals, even when you're running what you think is a, a flawless or peerless criminal empire. Yeah. Michael, go ahead. So what was interesting about it was that he um, used, again, the, he used the tools of Silicon, he used Silicon Valley tools in the way he operated, in the way he set up his organization, so that he wasn't in a place with these people in which he had permanent, like a permanent office or any kind of permanent infrastructure. He could be anywhere. He could be in Estonia. He could be in the United States. He could be in, in, in West Africa. He could be any place at all. And he had these satellite operations and he recruited people who could do what he needed them to do who weren't particularly brilliant because, he, because of um, the, compar- the compartmentalization that um, – that operating in the gig economy allowed him. So even if they were um, grabbed, let's say, or they were arrested or something was screwed up, it didn't necessarily connect to him or nobody at, at any moment in time ever knew where he was, which was another reason, as Lou and Tommy have discussed with me, it's another reason that they picked Liberia because they can apprehend LaRue. And if LaRue was going to cooperate and play ball, they could keep the fact that he had been arrested quiet because none of the rest of the people in, in LaRue's organization knew where LaRue was at any moment in time. That was how he – that's one of the ways that he protected himself. That also gave the DEA an opportunity to flip LaRue if he was going to flip and he absolutely did um, and – cooperate. It also gave them the opportunity to start rounding up both his uh, hit teams and then also start investigating these rant lines to other more, uh, in a way, serious involvements of LaRue, uh, like the connection with the Iranians and his correction, uh, connection with the North Koreans. Michael, I, I can't, uh, you know, everything necessarily has to come back to Miami Vice because I'm such a fanboy. But do you remember when cash was king and you'd want to get paid in cash and cash was the universal currency, whether you're talking about dollars or pounds, in this case, euros and everything else. And I was listening to NPR this morning and they had a Harvard economist on, 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 on cash really fading. It's problematic, one, because as you so documented in Miami Vice and in heat, you could get ripped off at any time. Two, it leaves a trail uh, you have to launder it. Uh, but the flip side of it now is this weird world of cryptocurrencies and getting paid in a kind of a murky, amorphous world where you know you just got, you know, you, you know you just made bank on this, like if you're a hitman getting paid in $25,000, but you have to cover your tracks. Uh, these guys really seem like they're at the vanguard of, of innovating in, in kind of evil fintech. Well, certainly the organization that he put in place and, and why his, uh, his significance and, uh, you know, the fact that as a, uh, as a criminal genius, a transnational crime lord, well, he constitutes a kind of a quantum leap in, uh, in, in you know, in, in, in what he was doing. Elaine, um, I want you to walk me through kind of the impressions you got of, of when LaRue realized he was caught. And kind of the the quick thinking that resulted then. Do I become an informant? Do I just cut my losses at this point? I'm still haunted by the photo in the book of him in this uh, orange polo shirt, looking disheveled, under arrest with, you know, Tom Sindrick on this private jet, 
and another DEA agent en route to New York. Um, just looking absolutely defeated, totally schlumpy, not what you would imagine an international crime mastermind would look like. I'm, I, you know, I'm thinking of, what was it? Uh, you know, it was the Die Hard Christmas movie and the late actor, you know, who played the villain and the, the voice obfuscation software and everything. This looks like the very antithesis of that. Well, maybe. And there's still, there, uh, and thank you, Derek Maltz, the head of SOD who took those pictures inside the plane. How else would I, I, I look out on such wonderful pictures? But really, as Tom and Lou have, de- and Tom's partner, Eric, have described the scene to me, they absolutely had to physically wrestle this man in the rain, onto the plane, into the police headquarters. He was resisting. He was slumping. He was trying to bribe the Liberian officers. The minute he got on the plane and got shackled up, he completely flipped and said, okay, I want to make a deal. I don't want to end up like Victor Boot, who went to trial and got 25 years. He should have gotten life. He said, I want to make a deal. Uh, Okay, how do I make a deal? And I'll let these guys describe to you the negotiation. But it went on for quite a while because they really couldn't make a deal. He was determined as a 38-year-old then who liked women and who liked creature comforts. He was determined that this wasn't going to be the end of his life. So I think that what you see there is intensity. How can I manipulate these people to find my path out of this jam? Where was the joy, Elaine, in what he did, even when you described his interactions with women? It was just kind of going through the motions of, okay, I'm an international kingpin. I, I should be whoring. I should be buying yachts. I should be going through all of this. It was something f- fundamentally melancholy about reading this because I just never detected the euphoria or the ecstasy on him. He was just doing it almost like resigned. This is what I, this is what I was put on this earth to do. Yes, isn't that chilling? But a lot of us including me, who work all the time, I enjoy work. And I think he really enjoyed work. He enjoyed manipulating people. He, If you read his emails, for instance, and I have, he's giving orders. He's, we, he's mastered uh, routes. He's mastered geographies. He's mastered political systems. And he's giving instructions that are very complex. And it's all coming out of his head. You wrote about uh, this critical uh, informant and this asset that you had with him in African and Asia, Taj. Um, An undercover specialist, Taj was always dirt level, eyeball to eyeball with someone who would enjoy killing him. His life depended on his ability to read his adversary's mind. He had to customize every character he invented to be the person his target desperately wanted to please. LaRue was the finest example of the deviant brain Taj had never come across. As LaRue wrote emails to his employees, Taj imagined the undercover scenarios he would run if LaRue were his target. How would he crack him? How would he get into his head? Taj wanted to climb inside LaRue's mind and stay there for a while, like a kid playing with the best model train set or newest computer game on the market. I'd love to spend two weeks with him so he could openly talk to me, Taj said. Imagine how much we could learn from him. Imagine talking to him, understanding his fundamental thought process and how he thinks about people. Close quote. Um, meanwhile, this guy could get killed at any moment. Um, you know, if, if they suspect anything, they'll have him destroyed and disposed of. I don't, again, there are many things I don't understand in this book. How do you guys in the DEA find these rare assets with that kind of uh, uh, self-awareness and grace under the worst kind of pressure? 
So uh, to clarify, Taj is a DEA special agent that's done a- undercover all over the world. So he wasn't an asset. He wasn't a source. The source that was used was someone that Tommy and his partner Eric developed, a guy in the book named Jack. Uh, how do you develop them? You know, you have to understand people. You have to uh, gain their trust. And then like any other investigative tool, you have to very carefully control them, which Tommy and Eric did, to use him to infiltrate LaRue's network. But Taj is a DEA agent, uh, Afghani-American, uh, who, who became an agent and, and is really a superstar for DEA. Yeah, Taj is Sammy the Libyan. And in the bio, Elaine, you talk about Taj's upbringing and all the awful things he went through in the real-world horror of you know, failed Afghanistan and, and being able to kind of come to the United States and reconstitute and then, you know, buck up and then completely uh, uh, transmogrify into this DEA super agent. Um, there's a stage surveillance photo of Tom as as Taj as Sammy the Libyan in a target package supplied to the LaRue hit team lured to Monrovia. And when I saw that, it just sent chills down my spine. Like, we're watching them. They're watching us. Uh, who's going to blink first? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Taj has also played a Mexican, and he's played other nationalities. I've asked him, how do you do that uh, since you don't know any Spanish? He went to school in California with people who spoke Spanish, but he doesn't try to speak it. He just says, well, if you swagger a lot, then nobody questions you. He's just good at what he does, and he was interested in LaRue because LaRue's brain doesn't work the way ours works, and he wanted to know more. And how many different ways can you get taken out in a place like Somalia or Monrovia or the Philippines? You know, again, I'm struck, and it's a testament to kind of the DEA and the special unit we're talking about here, that you have people with more than ice water in their veins, that they're so mission-oriented and so discreet and so omniscient almost, Michael Mann, that they can go into situations like this and prevail over a person with infinitely more money and, and premeditation ability than them. Well, you know, when when you get next to these people, and this is one of, the, one of the things that's so terrific about Elaine's book, is that when you get really close to these people and you find yourself in the room with them on a, you know, on uh, an hour by hour, uh, minute by minute, heartbeat to heartbeat basis, uh, you you really get the you get the true sense and the true passion of their of their of their commitment, the intelligence, and it becomes not like something that you'd see dramatized um, it's so often or, or written about in fiction. It becomes real. They're real people just like us, but they're they're focused and almost with an obsession to hit this target. And in the way that the uh, for example, the way the nine sixty group rounded up three different groups of killers, two of which were done with very elaborate undercover uh, stings. Um, you know, those all had to be reverse engineered to initiate at a certain point and then conclude simultaneously at the same time on three different continents along with the apprehension in Thailand. That's ex- those logistics are extraordinary. You'd be hard-pressed. Feature film production at a top level is amazingly efficient. You'd be hard-pressed to do something like that in, in any other organization I've ever, I've ever encountered. But these guys pull that kind of thing off. And that's what this, this book does. It brings you right into the heart of that in such an immediate way. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Mann, Hollywood legend, uh, Behind Heat, 
insider, Last of the Mohicans, Miami Vice. Um, he will be working on the adaptation of Elaine Shannon's book, Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire. We're joined in studio as well by Elaine Shannon. She is the veteran investigative journalist behind this, as well as DEA special agents retired, Tom Sindrick and Lou Milioni. Uh, can somebody please chime in on the state of the internet? I guess I first, I first, uh, uh, you know, I showed up at college. I used the World Wide Web to check my email in 1994. And now we hear the dark web and various iterations of the dark web and, and ways that, you know, at the very first level, you as a, as a criminal person would um, communicate over WhatsApp or Signal or other encrypted software. But you need to be three steps ahead of Interpol and the FBI and other places who have the keys to unlock these things. So you both communicate and transact over what, like a, a, a super, super secret dark web? You're asking how we communicate? Yeah. No, I mean, how we, these guys do and how oh. you how you are able to, to look into that without so, giving away too much of the colonel's secret recipe. Well, well so it's, it, there's no secret recipe to this. We recruited a source that had direct access into LaRue's network, right? So LaRue had a, his own servers and his own email system which he communicated directly with his people on. We had access to that email system through the confidential source who had access to LaRue. And that's really how we did it. We didn't have to do anything super secret to infiltrate other than get somebody close to him and be able to gather the information. But let me, let me push on this. Like, suppose I want to be a devious uh, international criminal mastermind. Suppose it's, you know, plain vanilla stuff like moving kilos between Florida and Mexico or opium from Afghanistan, small parts for arms dealers in the Middle East. Is using WhatsApp sufficient to con- encrypt my communication? I mean, could you explain that for our listeners? Uh, what, what other steps do people have to take to kind of be two or three steps ahead of international law enforcement bodies? Not to have a friend or a girlfriend who I'm going to talk to and flip and make them tell on you. Mm. If you're talking to somebody, I will get to you, period. Because your friend is going to have a weakness. Somebody always has a weakness. If you're talking to people, you're vulnerable. And if your friend is willing to give you up because we can, we can compromise them, they will. And all these people who say, I'll never flip, are liars. Hmm. Tell me where uh, Dennis Gogol and Paul LaRue are right now and what the state of play is. Paul LaRue is in an undisclosed location being held for sentencing. He is not free. He is pending sentencing in the Southern District of New York. Um, Dennis Gogol, I believe, has been sentenced. And I think if you look at the BOP logs, you can probably find out where he is. Hmm. Do you wonder, uh, Elaine or Michael, if... You know, in doing all of these things and trying to hit all of these various different tripwires of arms smuggling, money laundering, you know, coffee grind, repurposing, that it was almost this desperate effort to get caught? I don't think so. I, think I doubt it. I don't was, think he wanted to get caught. This, I wrote a book about uh, Bob Henson, the FBI spy, and uh, I was talking to some CIA people, and they were talking about Henson and Aldrich Ames, the other the CIA spy, and they said, well, you know, most people have an inferiority complex, but these guys had a superiority complex. They thought they could get away with anything. I think LaRue was that in spades. I think he absolutely believed he was the smartest person in the room and in the universe, and he would never get caught. So did you ever feel at risk in, in reporting this, Elaine? 
even if you know a lot of the people were already in the system ensnared, uh, they, they've offed people for far less. There are other hitmen who are at large and who have not been charged and who are able to travel. So, yeah, there's a risk there. But, hey, I'm a journalist. This is a good story. I'm not giving it up because somebody makes me nervous. Uh, Michael, how many different uh, true crime pursuits can you take on, I mean, in your career? Uh, again, it goes back to me with the inception of Miami Vice and and looking at those things. And then, the, again, Miami Vice coming to cinema. But you have covered, and I'm thinking of Pacino and De Niro in Heat. And there's something so irresistible about the kind of the pursuit, the all-encompassing immersion in, in kind of, you know, catching the mouse. Well, the uh, to take the Pacino and De Niro in Heat, the uh, I'm always attracted to um, uh, a subject usually because uh, there's there's something I've encountered in out of real life or somebody I've met in real life who is a thief. John Santucci was the thief. That thief was based on, and in the writing of it, which took more than two years, I spent a lot of time with John. Got to know him, know his family. Uh, he was absolutely a stone highline burglar and um, led, a, led a very odd life, but it's a very human life. It's dimensional. And those kind of characters, uh, uh, both on, on, the, on, the, on the detective side as well as the crime side, they interest me only when I'm in contact with, uh, with, with the real people. And the, the expressions, the dimensionality of their lives, everybody is somebody else's son, brother, uh, sister or brother. Um, you know, it, it 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 brings a dimension that you can't make up when you're sitting in a room in Los Angeles. So, um, you know, De Niro is playing Neil McCauley. A friend of mine, Charlie Adamson, killed the real Neil McCauley in Chicago in 1963. And the coffee shop sequence that you referred to, that happened at the Belden Deli on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago sometime around, you know, in late 1962. Um, there wasn't exact dialogue, but that was, but the the regard, the high regard that Adamson had for Macaulay as a Highline pro, somebody who was he respected him because he was disciplined uh, and liked him, had a rapport with him. That wouldn't, at this point, at the same time, that wouldn't uh, uh, Adamson would have blown him out of his socks at the drop of a hat. Um, and the two aren't a contradiction. They're both. They both exist. They're both true. And that's that's the point. And when you, um, you know, that kind of drove me in, in, in Manhunter, Red Dragon, to have Dennis, you know, the late great Dennis uh, Farina, who, who Lou also knew um, very well, uh, you know, be confronted by Billy Peterson. Billy Peterson re- refers to a, a serial killer, Dalahide, as saying he, uh, you know, as a child, my heart goes out to him because uh, he was a battered child, probably a battered infant. Uh, as a, as an adult, I would blow the, I'd blow him out of his socks without thinking twice about it. It's the same line, and um, and he kind of assaults Freen and said, "Does that does that does that disturb you?" That he holds these two opposite thoughts at the same time. That's those those are the those are the paradoxes that sharpen the heart, that sharpen a character, that sharpen a moment, and makes drama. Um, something to to an audience, and audiences are very bright. They perceive that, and they say, "Wait a minute, there's something authentic here." They sense the authenticity. They sense the truth-telling style, and that opens a conduit between the work that I do and the, and an and audience, and they trust it, and then they feel more. So that's the that's that's the ambition. How many people, Michael, still want to talk your head off about Miami Vice? 
How many people? Um, I mean, if somebody bumps into the elevator at w, at NPR New York City, Michael Mann, Miami Vice, <laughs> is that kind of you know? Oh, Calderon, or w- uh, what about PMT's EGOT? What you know? Miami Vice was really crazy, and for the two years that I was on it, on, a, on a, a, basically two and a half years on a day-to-day basis, we were having an absolutely great time. You wouldn't tell it by taking a look at myself and the crew because we were a wreck because we were doing 22 of these a year. It's not like a series. Now, something calls itself a series, and they do eight hours or 10 hours. We did 22 a year, and we shot them do in you, seven days. Do you days. go back and look at the, the the ensemble cast from the first? I'm not telling you anything new. I mean, Phil Collins, just mm-hmm. like Julia Roberts, Chris Rock. You, you can't even recognize these people. Ben Stiller, it's kind of laughable. I think Penn and Gillette. I think uh, uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss played a right. guy who called himself the Sears Robox of controlled substances. I mean, America was a great country that we could do that back then. No, it was pretty wild. We were we were able to uh, attract a lot of people, including Miles Davis, who did two episodes. Oh, the, the NBA uh, Hall of Famer Bill Russell. I remember him on a yacht. Well, pr- probably the one episode that had the, the, the most spectacular casting was when we did uh, we did a um, an episode which uh, which had G. Gordon Liddy playing a CIA <laughs> right. agent that who was right. uh, <laughs> was sending who was sending weapons to. Uh, Nicaragua and getting drugs back in return. I bet he was actually doing that in real time during the hospital. Well, it was it was uh, right. It aired on a Friday night, and then Hassenfuss got shot down the following <laughs> sa- Sunday. So it uh, it was kind of contragate before contragate. To this day, I hear that theme song, and I'm thinking Friday night. And by the way, Jack, Jackson Brown wrote all the music for it. It was cool. Uh, Elaine and Michael, um, in the 15 minutes or so we have left, I'd love to get you to unpack this idea of your collaboration going back, what, 30-plus years. Uh, Elaine, I remember your your book back in 1988, Desperados, Latin Drug Lords, U.S. Lawmen and the War, America Can't Win. It was a New York Times bestseller, and then it was adapted for an Emmy-winning NBC miniseries, Drug Wars, the, the Camarena story, which was produced by Michael. And then... Your Emmy-nominated 1992 miniseries, Drug Wars, The Cocaine Cartel, also produced by Michael Mann. Um, This book, Hunting LaRue, is the first book to be published under Michael Mann Books. I really want to get into how that happened, what you can comment on, and and, and kind of uh, what is perceived as the collapse of of motion pictures and everything going to Netflix. I'm opening it up to you. It happened by accident. We were The first book that was supposed to come out under Michael Mann Books is going to be um, heat. It took a long time to figure out if there's any way to do a sequel, and the answer was there was if you also did a prequel at the same time. And so we've combined that into a novel that I'm writing with Reed Coleman, who's a very, very talented writer. Um, and the um, that was supposed to be the first publication, and it was a novel, uh, followed by a second one based on something called Big Tuna. And the uh, when I read Elaine's – a couple of chapters she sent me, and I think the first thing I read was that description that you of, – of Taj on the plane with Gogol with you, that, that, that you referenced. And uh, there was such, such electricity, such immediacy to it. Um, I had never been – never read anything that, that had put me in such close proximity uh, in the um, – and uh, so we kind of pushed that. Working with Harper Collins, they were terrific, and we pushed that out into, uh, you know, into Hunting the Rue. Elaine? Well, Michael and I met in 1988 when he wanted to option my book, Desperados, for this miniseries, and we had dinner. And it ended up in a long conversation about the nature of the human soul 
and how you can tell if somebody's got one. And we also talked about Kadensky's theory of color and how that fit into Manhunter and the serial uh, killer uh, psyche. I was absolutely captivated. Uh, Michael is at, is at heart, I think, a journalist and a documentarian, and he and I see eye to eye on reality, which is you'd never change it, you celebrate it, and you enjoy it and find it out in all its texture and complexity. So when I started working on this thing, I told him about it. And he liked it, and he helped me see it more. He never wanted to change it or shorten it. He wanted to lengthen it. And all of that is golden to a writer, because you write alone a lot of the time. To have someone with his eye, his ear, his appreciation of the human tragedy and the human com- comedy, it's just beyond priceless. Did you know before entering into doing the book, Elaine, that it, it would automatically be adapted by by Michael, that there was no question asked? The, the story, even on a two-page memo, was so over the top, so crazy. And I just read a handful of these these ridiculous crimes to you that, listen, let's just cut to the chase right now. You go off, Elaine, do the reporting, deliver me the most amazing TikTok of this true story, and I will take care of all the Hollywood behind the scenes. Oh, no, it didn't go like that at all. I I think I was at the uh, baggage collection in the airport. I was coming back from Minneapolis. I had just seen Paul LaRue for the first time. I'd gone out to watch him at a hearing that Tommy and uh, Eric were at, and maybe Lou. And uh, I had called Michael about something else, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've just come back from Minneapolis. I'm getting my bag, and I have just seen the most amazing human being I think I've ever seen about it, and I'm doing a book. Well, I told him a little bit more about it, and he asked to see what I was writing, and I sent it to him, and here we are. Wow. Uh, Michael, comment, if you will, on the completely different landscape right now of premium TV and and kind of the Netflix-Hulu world versus um, the difficulty of pushing through kind of a 90-minute movie treatment. Everybody seems to think that like the gold... I mean, the, the golden ring right now is getting a Netflix deal or getting a an Amazon Studios deal. You see what happens during Emmy and Oscar season. The um, we're entering a period in which uh, it's not a bubble; it's a uh, it's, it's a constantly increasing uh, amount of content that's going to be coming to us. It is coming to us, and it's going to be coming to us via SVOD. Uh, what is that? Subscription video on demand. Mm-hmm. Whether pay TV or you know, or subscription straight subscription TV, like uh, like Netflix, it's a completely different business. Um, they're in the business of making sure their subscribers stay with them and don't quit, and it's a whole different business model than say box office. But the point is, is that it's you attract audience by quality, something unique that nobody else has, and then you want to hold on to them. That's the business they're in. And as we go from 4G into 5G, which is going to be huge, um, where you'll be able to download a high-def movie on your cell phone in 25 seconds, uh, it's the, the demand for content is incre- constantly increasing every single year and production's exploding. Also, because of the Internet, and it relates to the whole subject of Hunting LaRue, by the way, because of the Internet, there's a real reason and and push for 
content to be global. Consequently, uh, terrific television series like, uh, like Babylon Berlin or Berlin Babylon. I got a little bit of dyslexia and keep forgetting which way they're supposed to go. But Berlin Babylon, uh, very successful, totally subtitled. I'm doing something on Mark Bowden's book, uh, Way 1968. Half the, half, the, half the dialogue and half the characters are Vietnamese, speaking of Vietnamese and subtitled. You, wouldn't, you weren't able to do this kind of content three years ago. And it's, uh, it's a changing world. It's very, very exciting. The market in India is, is, is the equivalent of the market in the United States. So we're entering into a really globalized uh, audience for more and more uh, exciting content. And there's a drive towards quality. So to me, it's an absolute – it's a golden age. But here's the, here's the paradox in reading like a person like LaRue. Piracy is – is it's going to become so easy to pirate a 4K treatment of something or to get something that's in studios. Um, you saw the studios fight back with watermarks on the DVD screeners that they hand out. Um, as the world becomes so globalized uh, in terms of, of exchanges and, and bandwidth has become too cheap to meter, it's going to be vexingly harder to kind of protect your IP and make sure people are paying you for your content. When I look at somebody like LaRue, it was child's play for him. Well, people are paying for DVD, but DVDs are on the decline. When you're buying a, a subscription, when you're dealing with Netflix or you're buying something on Amazon, and that's different. So the piracy, in a way, becomes less of an issue. Elaine, don't you think that this lends itself to a long series kind of hunting LaRue? You guys, especially with you know, Tom and Lou, could stretch it out to several seasons and I would follow it. I mean, you look at the arc at, at, at Narcos. I mean, they take it from Medellin to Cali uh, to Mexico. It's a, it's, a, it's a much more prolonged cat and mouse thing that's very bingeable. There's a lot of stories in the naked cyberspace, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, I think about... This is a way of exploring one very rich and dark corner of cyberspace. There are others. I don't know whether I'll ever run into anybody as talented uh, in programming and, and secrecy and everything else as, as LaRue, but there are other billionaires out there doing very bad things and pumping their money into wars and addiction and arms, uh, I'm going after them. I'm coming for them. Mm. And uh, age isn't stopping either of you. You've been going at this forever. That's right. I'm 104. <laughs> <laughs> no, Michael, you've been doing this for the longest time, and you are just still fascinated enough by stories that come along, and you'll, you'll accept first and ask questions later. Uh, yes, I, I'm motivated by uh, stories that that uh, they have unique. I, I know. I don't, actually, I don't know exactly what I'm motivated by, but it just seems to hijack or arrest me and take me off into a place. But they usually involve some kind of spectacular com conflict. And the more I do it, the more uh, I'm attracted to uh, complex, large-scale stories. So whether it's in 1757, the last of the Mohegan, last of the Mohicans, which is a which is like a three-part conflict between both uh, colonials, uh, indigenous Native Americans, and, and Britain with three different judicial systems, whether it's this conflict set up in the last of the Mohicans or uh, between journalists and big tobacco and corporate America and uh, an insider, um, it's conflict that takes me. And when the milieu, when the, when the arena is as rich as it is here, 
um, and and there's protagonists on both sides who are as fascinating as these. It's uh, you know it, it's like somebody once said to me, you know when you know, and I know when I've suddenly been kind of grabbed by the back of the neck and said, you know, you're going to do this. Uh, you know, and I, I'm just thinking right now by way of closing, you've worked with Daniel Day Lewis. Al Pacino, and, and now you could say you worked with Robin Farzad. I didn't even get one laugh there. <laughs> I laughed. Just the terrible silence in the room. Close us, close us out, Michael, especially with, with El Chapo, you know, coming to his denouement and resolution. This was another person who was thought of as, as untouchable, and he was very mortal, and he was brought to justice. Well, Elaine has a, 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 couple, a description of El Chapo in, the, in her introduction which is that he's from the Miami Vice era. He's really three generations ago. He really belongs in, back in the 1980s in terms of his sophistication and his operations, the way he operates. If you were to, if you were to put a vintage to business plans of, uh, of transnational uh, criminal enterprises, he's, uh, you know, he's 1980s vintage. Elaine, I mean, in that you covered this so intimately, and I'm thinking of Kiki Camarena and how yes. many decades it's taken to finally, you know, bring Mexico, partially at least, to justice. I don't think, I think I hear corruption down there is as bad or worse as ever. And I was just looking at this because El Chapo is last year, last decades, but there are innovative lieutenants, young men uh, and women in his organization, and they're doing some surprising things with super labs and chemicals making fentanyl pills that look like Oxycontin because Oxycontin's getting scarcer. Freed of this old bastard, uh, this old guy, uh, they are doing some really, really scary things now. And my sources at DEA, not all of whom are in the room, are saying that we're about to get hit with a major tsunami of fentanyl and heroin mixed, and it's going to kill a lot more of us, and we've got to do something about it. That's the real crisis on the border as far as I'm concerned. And when you look at the portions of fentanyl that can be lethal, I mean, it's so striking when they put it up against a penny and you see a shipment of, of hundreds of pounds of it busted in China. I mean, it's just completely sobering. And we just had the hundreds of pounds of it busted in Nogales, and we just saw a Canadian get convicted for shipping it uh, south over the, uh, the border. And it's about the size of a, the beard on the Lincoln penny will kill you. Wow. And I'm very worried about it. I think LaRue might have gotten into it if he these guys here hadn't grabbed him off the streets in a timely fashion. I really appreciate this. As I said before, a veritable true crime lovers fest, an all-star cast that joined us from NPR New York City. Michael Mann, Hollywood filmmaking legend, Elaine Shannon, veteran investigative journalist, author of Hunting LaRue, the inside story, the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire, and retired DEA special agents Tom Sindrick and Lou Milioni. I cannot thank you enough. Thank, thank you. you, Rob. Thank you. Pardon that quip. I thought I'd get a chuckle out of the Daniel <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe, you know, in hindsight. We were thinking about your truth. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Sarah Fishman at NPR New York. Please enjoy this show on NPR member station WCVE 88.9 FM on NPR.org and the great NPR One app. And of course on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are global merchants of kilobits per second who only snitch for our most loyal listeners and maybe Crockett and Tubbs. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Mm-hmm.